If you will, turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter, the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 17, as we continue our study through the Word. So we have come to the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember that the crowds were large following Jesus and, and how Jesus then had withdrawn up higher onto the mountain and his disciples now came up. And, and so Jesus sat down and, and began to pour forth truth. The kingdom of God, this, this kingdom that Jesus was setting up, what is the righteous standard of entering into the kingdom? What is the internal conditions of the heart of a person that is a, a follower of Christ who will enter into this kingdom? And, and so you will remember how Jesus began, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and Jesus began to talk about uh, the understanding and the recognition of how absolutely dependent upon God we are, that we don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves when we stand before the one who is perfect righteousness, who is perfect in holiness. And, and when we begin to recognize that, uh, that we do not stand, cannot stand before God and declare, I am a righteous person. I am a good person. And so blessed is that person when they come to that place of recognizing God's holiness. And, and from there, blessed are those who mourn when, when you see how far short you fall from God's standard of perfection, then you mourn over that and, and are sorrowful and says that they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who rest and trust in God to have deliver in his timing those things that we would no longer be fighting for ourselves fighting for self-sufficiency but there would be a resting and a dependence upon God and and so we continue to to move forwards blessed are the merciful and blessed are the peacemakers and and blessed are you when following after Jesus has consequences in in your life he says you're you're blessed he he continued to move forwards from those inner conditions of the heart to, to now, what is our relationship with the world when we are living in this kingdom now that is present, but yet also we are immersed in the world around us. And you'll remember that he said that you are salt, you're the salt of the, uh, of the earth. He says, you're the light of the world. And take your light and let it shine forth before men that they would see your good works and that they would glorify God in heaven. You see, we can do good works that draw attention to ourselves. We can make a lot of noise with our good works, but we see that Jesus says to live in a way that points the glory to God and not to ourselves. He, he now is going to instruct uh, the, the, the people, the, his disciples now, uh, into kingdom living. And, and the issue or the question is the, the law. God gave the law to the Jews there at Mount Sinai through Moses. And, and so Jesus is now going to begin to talk about righteousness, a righteousness that is the true 
standard of righteousness. And he is going to speak now about the interpretation of the scriptures. The Jews had the scriptures, but they were misinterpreting them. And Jesus is now going to speak forth on what the intent behind the, the law that was given truly is. What is the spirit behind the law? And so he begins in verse 17 speaking about his relationship to the law. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one dot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And so Jesus now speaking about the law says that the law is good. The law is righteous. It is holy. Psalm 19, 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect and converting the soul. And so Jesus didn't come to abolish or to annul what had been told, what had been revealed by God previously. And so we see that the problem with the law, the only problem with the law that was given is that we can't keep it. That's the problem with the law. And so it is by the law that we now have the knowledge of sin. And it is in that knowledge of sin that we recognize that, uh, that we are not uh, able to walk um, perfectly. And, uh, and so Paul said that he didn't know what sin was until the law showed him what sin was. And, and so when you have a proper understanding of the law, when you have a proper understanding of um, sin, then it always drives us to the cross then it always brings us to that place where we don't have a righteousness that is in and of ourselves, but that we are dependent upon God for our righteousness, that through faith in Christ we receive true righteousness and that by grace and mercy. He says of what has been revealed, of what has been written in the scriptures, the validation of the holy scriptures. We see that he says that not one jot or one tittle of the law is going to pass away without all of it being fulfilled. A jot is the smallest of Hebrew letters. A tittle is the, the little marking. It's like saying the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the I's that every single part of the law is going to be fulfilled. And, and so we see that Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures and that the plan of salvation we recognize and understand began all the way back in Genesis, even before man first sinned, God already had the, the plan for sin. And so uh, we see that the disciples are, are not going to fully understand how Jesus is going to fulfill all of the scriptures when he says that he came to fulfill the, uh, the law until after his death and his resurrection. And so when Jesus is instructing them and telling them that 
He is the fulfillment of the law. We have much greater understanding on that and can see it much clearer in the light of the entire life and work of Jesus Christ. But Jesus upheld the truth of every letter of every word in God's law. And everything prophesied in God's law will take place. No promise, no prophecy in the law will remain unfulfilled. Everything will be accomplished. And so, verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so, here we see that, uh, that there is the, the teaching of the word of God. And it says that teachers have a responsibility to teach correctly, to live correctly so that they don't influence uh, others to break even the smallest uh, of the laws. In verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. We see that the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were considered by the people the most righteous people on the face of the earth. They were the ones that were doing their absolute best to, to fulfill every single part of the law. But the problem was that their righteousness was an external righteousness. And they weren't keeping the law. They were keeping their interpretation of the law, the rules and the regulations and the interpretations of what the law actually said. And we are going to see that Jesus now is going to begin a commentary on various different topics and subjects. And, and he's going to begin them by saying, you have heard it said that dot 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 and then a quotation from the law itself but I say to you and then he is going to give us what is the truth behind the the word the law that had been given now he says you have heard it said because most of the people in Jesus's day could not read and write and so it would be up to the teachers and the local synagogues to be able to instruct them and teach them and so the scriptures were written in Hebrew, and, and there were very few people that could read Hebrew. Hebrew was not the common language of the day. The Greek was the common language of the day. There were copies of the scriptures that had been translated from Hebrew into Greek. That's called the Septuagint, but they were very few and far between. And so the people would be instructed not being able to read the word of God. Can you imagine if you couldn't read? the word of God and, and that all that you knew of the scriptures is now what wasn't taught to you what you heard well that was their condition and so Jesus is going to talk to them about the truth behind the word of God and, and what had happened to the interpretation of the scriptures themselves but for him to say that your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees for you to enter into the kingdom of God, 
had to be one of the most shocking statements that, uh, that the people could hear. The Pharisees were the ones that had given their whole life over to practicing every single part uh, of the law as it was interpreted by the scribes. The scribes were the ones that gave the interpretation, the rulings on the law. There were two types of scribes in Jesus' day. There were civil scribes and there were the ecclesiastical scribes. Now the civil scribes, they, they were more like notaries and they were the ones that would give the, the judgments in regarding to legal matters. You, 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 know, you stole this cow from me and now you have to pay me back this much. And, and so what does the law say the amount to uh, repay is and, and all of that? That was all in the civil law and there were the, the civil scribes. But then there were the ecclesiastical, the religious scribes. And they were the ones that were taking the moral standard and the moral conduct of God, and they were now making rulings upon these things. And then these rulings became the traditions that the people now were seeking to follow after. And, and so Jesus says that your righteousness, the righteous standard in the kingdom of heaven, exceeds, greatly exceeds that uh, of the scribes uh, and the Pharisees. And so here we see that Jesus is now shocking them. The Jews had a saying. They said that if only two people were to go to heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. That, that was the, the common thinking of their day. And, and now Jesus undoes that by explaining the true intent now of God's law. In verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. We see here from the Ten Commandments, not to commit murder. And, and so here Jesus is declaring that. You have heard it said, and rightfully so. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. So Jesus says, you've heard it said that you're not to commit murder. Now, people will say, you know, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody, you know, and they use that as this standard of, uh, of righteousness. And so I can look at myself and I can judge myself and say, I've never committed a murder in my life. Therefore, I'm a good person. But Jesus is going to talk about the fact that the sin of murder begins in the inception of what is inside your heart. Every sin begins in the heart. It starts there. And then it grows and matures to fruition and then activates it into a manifestation or an action. He says that murder, the very beginning of murder, is anger. Anger in your heart towards somebody else. And then we will have different manifestations of it. Before murdering someone, you will speak bad about them. You will judge them in your heart. They will now have an expression, an outward manifestation of this. And, and so he says that anger is, is the basic evil that is 
behind murder. And then slander is the next progression past anger, and, and that's to call them rocker. But then to condemn a person's character, that goes beyond slander now. And so we see this, this progression of seriousness. And, and so he talks about hell. He talks about the reality of being outside of the kingdom and, and the warning that hell is a, a very real place. Now, the word hell here is derived from Hinnom. And Hinnom is a valley that sits right outside of Jerusalem, the city itself. And, and so there is this cleft, this valley that is there. It was a forbidding place where during Jesus' day, trash was constantly being burned there. And so there was always this fire that was going on and always the smell of the garbage that was being burned off of the, the dump fire there in the Valley of Hinnom. But the Valley of Hinnom was originally desecrated by King Ahaz. King Ahaz was a wicked king in, uh, in Jerusalem. And, and we see that King Ahaz allowed for the pagan idolatry to enter in, to be acceptable, and to be worshipped there. And so one of the Canaanite gods was Moloch. And so Moloch, an altar to Moloch, was built there in the valley of Hinnom. And it was there that you would offer and sacrifice your children children to the god of uh, Moloch. Now, whenever a culture becomes sexualized, whenever they start having sex outside of marriage, then there is going to be the unwanted fruit of that sex in unwanted children. And so the culture always will need a way to get rid of unwanted children when sex has moved beyond marriage, beyond the confines of a family. And so here in that day, in sex and the Canaanite religions and the fertility goddesses and all were being practiced by the people. And, and so they would go and take the unwanted children and they would sacrifice them. They would burn them alive there on this altar to Moloch. King Ahaz himself was guilty of this practice. And, uh, and so King Josiah came along and King Josiah was good King Josiah and, and he reformed many of the practices of the day and, and drove out all of the pagan worship centers there. The Valley of Hinnom became known as the Valley of Slaughter and ultimately then turned into a dump to where now the garbage would be burned there. This is the, the word for where hell comes from, speaks of this eternal fire, this place of, uh, of judgment uh, here. And, uh, and so Jesus, and talking about the reality that uh, hell is a real place, he says in verse 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and, and then come and offer your gift. 
He's talking about the condition of our hearts and our hearts being right with one another. We see that anger is that first trajectory towards murder, but now he says that if somebody has something against you, you don't have anything against them, but you've heard that they're mad at you, that they're upset with you, that they've been hurt by you or something that they thought that you said, and that comes to your attention. He says, don't don't come in and, and worship. Don't bring your gift of worship to, to me when you are not right with the people that are around you. He says, and stop. First, go and get yourself right. Go to that person and be reconciled unto them and then come and worship me. You'll remember that Jesus said that the summation of the law is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and love your neighbor as yourself, that upon these two principles, all of the law is built. And so loving your neighbor as yourself is to be able to be concerned with the pain of others, that they are upset or hurting by you, and you want to go and, and minister to that and remove that pain, that misunderstanding, or apologize for the actions and, and to work to a reconciliation. He says, now your heart is good with others. Now come and worship me. Now come and bring your gift. He doesn't want us sitting in worship services when we are hating others and we are in conflict with others and, and our life is turbulent uh, around uh, us. We see blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said just earlier, and, and he wants us to be those peacemakers. Now, once again, the Bible does tell us that as much as depends on you, be on peaceable terms. This is a, he's speaking about an unaddressed issue that you are aware of, not one that is addressed or is in the process of being worked out because once again, to reconcile takes two people. And that's why the Bible says as much as depends on you, you are to initiate it. You are to chase after the peace. You are to be proactive in it and even even though you don't have an issue with them, they have an issue with you. It is common to say, well, you know, that's their problem. Uh, I didn't do it. I'm not responsible. And if they want to talk to me, they can come and talk to me and, and I'll talk to them. And so oftentimes we can give ourselves the passive card uh, on that and, uh, and let them come and deal with it. Jesus says, no, blessed are you. You are to be the peacemaker. You are the one that is to seek after reconciliation. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is the model of a peacemaker. He is the one that came to reconcile us. He is the one that sought us out when we were yet sinners and, and separated from God. And so here again, he is telling us that we are to be proactive in reconciling relationships with others. He says in verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. And assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, underneath Roman law, but both the, the plaintiff and the defendant would go together into the court. And, and as they would go together, you were free 
to resolve the conflict, to reconcile it. And if you reconciled it before you got to court, then uh, there was no need for the court to be heard. But if you did not, and now the court took the case, now you were going to be subject to whatever it is that the court rules at that point. Uh, no longer are you able to uh, resolve it. Uh, and so here we see that ultimately the picture is uh, two unreconciled people. Um, be reconciled before you stand before the judge. That judge is God ultimately. And, uh, and so reconcile those relationships in your life. He says in verse 27, shifting gears, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here we see that, again, the Pharisees would say, I've never committed a, a adultery. I'm righteous. I've never committed a murder. I'm, uh, I'm righteous before God. And Jesus says once again that adultery, that, that is the last step in the sin of adultery. The sin of adultery begins in the heart. It begins when you look upon a person and, and you think that they look attractive and, and now you start to, to lust for that person and, and so the lust turns into a relationship and then the relationship turns into an affair and finally adultery takes place. But he says that that is a whole trajectory that started when you first lusted after that person, when you first saw them and desire in your heart, that is where it began. And so if you are sitting there and you're lusting, but you've actually not acted out upon it, he says, you're not innocent uh, of the sin. That sin is on that trajectory and you just haven't brought it to completion. But before God, God sees the entire trajectory, not just the outward. Man looks at the outward. But God sees the inward. God sees the trajectories that we are on in our life and all of these internal issues that are going on within our hearts and, and within our minds. And, and so externally, we can be not in full-blown fruition of them. We can appear to be righteous on the outside, but, but inside, internally, we are a wreck. And so here we see that to be faithful to our spouses. This is what God has desired for us. And, and so if we are faithful with our body, but we are not faithful with our mind, that is to fall short of the oneness that God intended in the covenant of marriage. And so Jesus now steps up the, uh, the meaning of the law. You know, he says that I didn't come to, to abolish it. In fact, he came to show that the law is spiritual. They had interpreted it just as external, just as physical. And, and Jesus is saying the, the, the heart behind behind it is the spirit of the law and that is the condition of the heart he says if your right eye causes you to sin pluck it out 
Cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, when Jesus says to get rid of your eye or your hand, he was speaking figuratively. If he was speaking literally, it would be easy to recognize Christians. We all would be without an eye and without a hand, and we would go to shake hands and just have a wrist. They'd say, oh, you're a Christian. <laughs> you know, I see that you cut your wrist off uh, here. Jesus was speaking with a shock value to get their attention, to show them how serious sin is. And so uh, we see that Jesus now is mm, talking about the condition of the heart, the condition of our mind. We have to keep a, a careful watch over our mm, thought life, over the, the motives that are behind actions, be, the temptations that we are facing in our lives. When we find a destructive pattern in our life that is creeping in, we need to cut it out. We need to mm, throw it away. Sin is a moral cancer. And in the same way that, that, that we are so aggressive to treating cancer, we also need to be that aggressive when it comes to moral failure, moral sin that is in our lives. And the same reason that we get rid of cancer, that there is a, a little tiny spot of, uh, of skin cancer, and, and they take a gigantic area around it trying to make sure that they have gotten uh, all of the possible infected in cells and so they do a, a deep birth around it. Why? Because cancer spreads. And as that cancer spreads, it will threaten the health of the person that has it. Sin is the same way. If it is left unchecked, it spreads. The Bible says a little leaven leavens the entire lump. And it's that slow creep of compromise of sin in our lives. And so here Jesus is saying you need to be radical with the sin that is in your life. Do not compromise in any way, shape, uh, or form. He says in verse 31, shifts gears uh, again, speaking now about mm, divorce and, uh, and the culture and divorce. It said, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate uh, of divorce. Now, uh, that was in Deuteronomy chapter 24. The subject of mm, divorce was a hotly debated issue during mm, Jesus's day. But in Deuteronomy 24, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts puts it in her hand and sends her uh, out of the house. So uh, underneath the law, the law was given, and God declared that if a man found uncleanness in his wife, that he could give her a writing of divorce. Uh, and so it had to be written, he had to give it to her, and, uh, and that was what the law prescribed. The problem was, it didn't define uncleanness. 
It just said if there is a uncleanness in your wife that the man can divorce her. And so here became the interpretation of uncleanness. There was a very broad definition. That was the liberal school of thought. And then there was a, a very conservative interpretation of what uncleanness meant. We see that the religious leader uh, Hillel took it to mean that uh, a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason whatsoever. That something that was unclean could be anything that just simply displeased uh, her husband. And so if she displeased him, he could say, I find you to be unclean and write her a a divorce. Uh, Rabbi Shammai, he said that divorce could only be granted in cases of uh, adultery. And so you had divorce that was rampant in Jesus' day. It was easy to go and get a divorce. You just wrote it and you gave it and basically no fault divorce. Just say that she's unclean and, uh, and you divorce her. And so Jesus says in verse 32, but I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. And so here we see that divorce is as hurtful and destructive today as it was in Jesus' day. God intends marriage to be a lifetime commitment And people should never consider divorce as an option for solving problems. And and so relationships are to work through. Marriages are to work through their problems, through their challenges, get counsel, get help and assistance. And and this is God's intent uh, when he created the the covenant uh, of uh, marriage. And so we see that Jesus holds to a a very limited uh, aspect aspect of divorce. In verse 33, he shifts to oaths and how people would swear on all different things when they would make these elaborate oaths. And and so, verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one." Uh, and so here we see that uh, in Jesus' day, they, they, they would swear by the altar. They would swear by the gold on the altar. They would swear, and they would have these, these prescriptions for making an oath. But then if you didn't make it the right way, it didn't count. And so they were uh, avoiding being held accountable to the promises. And so Jesus backs it up. And he says, it's not about the way that you take the oath. He says, the issue is, why are you taking an oath in the first place? 
The reason why a person would take a, an oath is because the other person doesn't trust them and doesn't believe them. This is the issue of, uh, of character. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're young and, you know, and you're school age and, and you go and you tell somebody and they're like, you know, I don't believe you. And it's like, no, I'm telling you the truth. And it's like, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle through my eye, you know, or, you know, I swear on my grandmother's grave that I'm telling the truth. It's like the issue is one of integrity, that they do not believe that you are speaking truth. Jesus says that our integrity should be so that no one's asking us for an oath, that your yes is a yes, that your no is a no, and that it is demonstrated by your character in your life and, and not by having to put your hand on a Bible and swear or, or do anything additionally, that, that it is the the condition of the heart, and that we are honest, and that our words say what they mean and, and mean what we say. And so, verse 38, he, he moves on again. Jesus here just taking some of the various different ways in which uh, their practice of, uh, of living was not what God had intended. Remember that uh, the Pharisees and the, uh, and the scribes, they, uh, they believed that they were righteous before God. And, and we see that Jesus is showing them the condition of the heart and that there is no one that is righteous before God. That's what Paul says there in the book of Romans. There's none righteous, no, not one. Because you see, the law isn't about the external, it's about the, the internal. And so even if we are externally not sinning in the fruition, there is the, the issue of the heart, and in our hearts there's none righteous. Now, he's going to deal with the issue of retaliation. In verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And so here we see that Jesus begins by quoting from the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, you remember that there were the, the civil scribes and, and then there were the religious scribes. Well, the civil scribes, now God was giving to them a standard of judgment when he gave to them an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the way God's people, when the judges are over God's people, this was the standard. In other words, make the punishment fit the offense. In other words, don't now give a punitive punishment. Today in courts, oftentimes you will see that they will settle it and then they will add a punitive on top of it. That punitive is to send a message to everybody and, and so there's an excessive punishment that is given. He said, don't excessively punish and don't under punish that make sure that there is a, an equality here. And so this was the standard given to the judges when they were judging over the cases. But Jesus now is talking about the condition of the heart. 
And he is telling us that, that we are to be merciful and that we are to be gracious with others. And the standard of, of equity or fairness, he says, now the issue is one of the heart. Does he mean that if someone is hitting you that you're supposed to keep turning the other cheek? And No. Is he telling you that when someone is taking for you, you show them where the safe is and you give them everything that's, you know, all of your value? as well. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the condition of our heart towards uh, our possessions. And, uh, and so instead of demanding rights, the condition of the heart is to, to give them up uh, freely. Turning the other cheek is a condition of the heart and towards uh, somebody. Uh, when someone slaps you, the natural intent is to slap them back, is to get back, is to get even with them. But the condition of the heart of turning the other cheek says, I'm not going to engage in this. I'm not going to escalate this. I am going to, to separate myself from this situation. And so these are the conditions of the heart. And so give to him who asks. We see that this talks about the attitude towards our possessions. And, uh, and so oftentimes people can hold their possessions very, very tightly. And here we see that Jesus is telling us to, to hold on to our possessions loosely, that we should use everything that we have in our lives to love others. And, and so whether it's our possessions or the way that we treat them in our hearts, that we are to be loving people. And, and that's exactly where Jesus goes next. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And so Jesus now talked about the fact that we are to love others. And, and so they felt that, you know, they could love the, their fellow Jews, but they were allowed to hate the Gentiles. And, uh, and so you'll remember that Jesus gives a, a parable on this when, when the Pharisee comes and asks him, who is my neighbor? And you'll remember that he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and so here again, he says that you've heard it said that you're supposed to love. And you think that just loving the people that will love you back, that that, that is the fulfillment of the law. He says that's not the fulfillment of the law. The law tells us that we are to love everybody. The whole spectrum of people. God wants us to love them because he created them and he loves them. And even if they're misbehaving and even if they are doing bad things, he says, I don't want you to become the judge of people and then just love the people that, uh, that are doing well. He says, I am the judge. What I want you to do is I want you to love everybody with my love through you onto them. I want them to experience uh, my love and I want you to be an instrument uh, that I can use in order to love the people that you come in contact with. Now, uh, on the love scale, uh, we have the, the people that are easy to love. 
These are the people that are loving us back. They're kind to us. They're nice to us. They think like us. They look like us. They, uh, we all get along great. It's easy to love those people. Uh, then there's the next category of people. They're the ones that aren't so easy to, 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 to love. They're nice and, and all, but you, know, you don't quite click with them and you know, not so easy to, to love them. Then, then you have the people that's hard to love. They're the ones that annoy you. Have you ever met an annoying person that just, you know, I don't know, just you don't click with them. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard with that person. And, you know, and so they're the, uh, the harder people that are to love. Then there's the can't stand you Costanzas, you know, the, uh, the ones that just you have nothing in common with and you don't like the way they're living their life and the standards that they're living them by and, and you really Really want no part of them whatsoever and then all the way to the farthest end of that extreme is an enemy someone that hates you and someone who would like to see you destroyed that's the full spectrum someone that's easy to love all the way to the enemy and God wants to grow and to change each and every one of us to sanctify us and to help us to be able to love broader and broader and broader, to be able to move us further along in our capacity to be able to love people that think differently, that look differently, that behave differently from us. But God created them. And they're in the image and likeness of God. And God wants us to learn how to love them. Jesus fulfilled this. He fulfilled every single one of these intents of the heart. But you'll remember that there he was on the cross being crucified, being killed, and he is praying for, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, praying for the very people that as they were killing him there upon the cross. And so our capacity to love isn't just to love our spouse isn't just to love our family and then love a close knit of people, but it is to learn to have that capacity to be able to love everybody, even unto our enemies. And so I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the uh, unjust. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. And therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so we see now that Jesus says that the standard of righteousness in the kingdom is perfect righteousness. And so as people try to, uh, to evaluate them, themselves and to think that they're a good person and that they are righteous before God, here we see that Jesus shows them that the law was given that each and every one of us would recognize uh, our need, our absolute dependency upon Jesus Christ for that righteousness that I cannot attain to. They had taken the law and turned it into a game so they could declare themselves righteous before God. 
But the truth is, by the law, no one can declare themselves righteous. And so Jesus took and expanded it to give the intent. He had said that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, that you will by no means enter into the, uh, the kingdom of God. And so here we see that, uh, that once again the purpose of the law uh, is to show how far short that we have fallen so that we seek after his forgiveness and uh, his mercy and, and his righteousness. Uh, and so that righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So we look at our, our lives, we look at the conditions of our heart before God, and, and here's what we recognize, is that every single one of us is a work in progress. That when we got saved, we got accepted by God and loved by God just exactly as we were. But we see that the Holy Spirit has been placed inside of each and every one of our hearts. And that Holy Spirit is doing the work of sanctifying our lives. That sanctification is the process of changing you from who you were before you knew Jesus Christ to now, the follower of Jesus Christ that he is molding and shaping you into. And, and as we read through and we see what the intent of the, uh, of the law Law is the the heart behind the law we realize how far we still have to go from uh, from attaining the standard of righteousness of uh, of Christ and and so what that does what I hope that this does for you also is is that it puts you in a place where you never become satisfied with the righteousness that you have attained to that we never plateau and we say, you know, I don't really sin very much externally. I go to church. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm morally upright for the most part. And, uh, and I am now just kind of cruising in my faith and in my relationship with God. We see that the desire is, is that you would allow God to continue to expand your heart to be able to love him more fully as you get to know him more fully and know his grace and his mercy, you fall deeper in love with him and that he continues to expand our hearts and our capacity to be able to love uh, uh, others. And so this is now the purpose that God has created for us, that we would allow more of his love to flow through us uh, onto others. And, and that isn't a work of ourself. Your sanctification isn't a process of self-discipline. That's a work of the Spirit in your life. And so here we see that God desires us to live holy unto him. And that holiness has to do with our hearts and our thoughts and the purity that we are living and worshiping God with. And God is the one that is cleaning us. He is the one that is sanctifying. He is the one that is changing us. And so 
May the Lord grant that we would never stop growing in our lives, that we would continue to chase after Jesus, that we would ask God, God, continue to do your work. Go quicker. Help me to grow. Give me more of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Help me to be more long-suffering, gentle, kind. Help me to, to understand how to walk in meekness, surrender to your leading in our lives. And, and so each and every one of us, we are a, a project that God is working on individually. He knows what you're doing well. He knows the areas that, uh, that he would like to see us grow. And he is actively working in your life to be able to continue to grow you into that man of God that woman of God that you desire to be, that the inward spirit desires to be, and that he has created us for. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And God, I pray that we would never make it about rules and regulations, not about the, the fruition of the sin, but the very inception of it, the very seeds of, uh, of sin. Would you help us to, uh, to be discontent uh, with the, the place that we are in? Give us a, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Your word tells us that, uh, that we will be filled when we hunger and thirst uh, for more of you, for that righteousness that we have in, in Christ Jesus. We love you, God. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.